Welcome to Talking Biotech, the podcast dedicated to exploring the latest advancements in biotechnology, sponsored by Calabra, the R&D software that accelerates scientific discovery with AI. Each week, we'll dive into the latest innovations and discoveries with industry leaders and pioneers. Now, here's your host, Dr. Kevin Fulta. I want to see science serve a useful purpose to improve the standard of living for all people. Why is anyone fighting food advance? A very small percentage of the world's population is fortunate enough to have the luxury of turning down food. We've arranged a society based on science and technology. There was nobody understands anything about science and technology. You can't build a peaceful world on empty stomachs and human misery. You're listening to Talking Biotech, the weekly podcast illuminating issues in agriculture and medical biotechnology. Your questions and concerns are answered using a science-based approach with the goal of driving innovation to application with communication. Now here's your host, Dr. Paul Vincelli. Welcome to the Talking Biotech Podcast, the weekly podcast where we discuss contemporary issues in science and technology with a focus on biotechnology and new innovations that can help people and the planet. I'm Paul Vincelli, sitting in for Dr. Kevin Fulta. Once again, thanks, Kevin, for the chance to do this. And today we're going to be talking about transgene flow, uh, a topic I've had a long uh, standing interest in. And uh, we have uh, one of really the people I've uh, re- whose work I've read quite a bit of today in, in the program. And her name is Dr. Carol Mallory-Smith, uh, professor of wheat science from Oregon State University. And welcome to the program, Carol. Oh, thank you. Yeah. So um, if, before we go into the technicalities of transgene flow, um, you, let me just uh, give you a chance to say something about yourself. You're, I see you're in the Department of Crop and Soil Science at Oregon State. And um, really just tell us something about your, your background and your career interests or anything that helps the listeners get to know you better. Okay. I've been a professor at Oregon State University since 1994. Um, I am in the crop and soil science department. I have worked in several different areas in weed science uh, from very applied research, working with just weed control and and herbicides um, testing. But I've also had an interest in genetics and then this interest in um, gene flow in the environment. And part of the interest is transgene flow, but I've also worked on uh, gene flow of uh, other other genes that really aren't um, transgenic at all. They're just um, genes that uh, would be moved during hybridization between crops and weeds. And so I've had an interest in that for a long time. I have worked uh, with um, Roundup Ready Creeping Bent Grass. That's where I've looked at a lot of the gene flow that's occurred uh, in the environment with that particular crop. Mm-hmm. So, uh, just for the benefit of the listeners that maybe uh, have not heard that term before, d- tell us what a, a transgene is. Well, the transgene is a, a gene that's been engineered uh, mm-hmm. to have more have a trait, but it also has other parts to it that are are uh, can help it be placed in the plant, get it turned on. Uh, mm-hmm. 
and turned off in the plant uh, when in within that trend within the the gene that of interest. So it's going to be a, a gene that was put in, uh, which is going to result in a particular trait of interest. And and particularly a gene or genetics that come from outside the normal breeding pool. Is that a fair description? Yes. So um, you could get the trait through sort of a what people would consider conventional. If it actually exists in the germplasm, you could do it through conventional breeding or even other techniques that aren't considered transgenic uh, breeding, for example, mutation breeding, which is not considered transgenic breeding. So in this case, you're actually inserting a gene uh, that's going to be coming from um, a a different species generally Mm -hmm. uh, to be put in there. And that gene actually could come from, for example, a bacterium and be placed into a crop. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Which is, in fact, what the... uh Roundup Ready or glyphosate tolerance trait is, is is it not? It's a gene from a a bacterium that was inserted into creeping bent grass in this case. Is that that correct? Yes, that's correct. Okay. So it's it's really a pleasure for me to be able to talk to you about this subject. I I think I may have emailed you and told you this, but I I assign your uh, Journal of Applied Ecology paper from 2008, I assign that as a reading in my graduate course on on, uh, gene genetic engineering of crops, uh, risks, and benefits, because it's really, in a single paper, really gives the students a very nice introduction to what what can happen, you know, in terms of uh, when, it, when a transgene is introduced into an open-pollinated, wind-disseminated wind uh, species, and um, wind-pollinated species, I should say. Um, so tell us about uh, the facts of the situation, you know, the, gra- the glyphosate tolerance or uh, Roundup Ready creeping mint grass out there in Oregon from the beginning. So, yeah, it's a, long, a little <laughs> bit of a long story from the beginning. Yeah. Okay. But um, this, this particular crop was, uh, is a transgenic crop that was bred to be resistant to the herbicide glyphosate or Roundup. It was produced by Scott's and Monsanto in a joint venture and in the um about 2002 um it was planted as a field for for seed production so it wasn't really a research um project at that point in time the companies were expecting deregulation soon and were ramping up for actually the sale of the seed so they had um planted this this crop in multiple uh, fields within a particular area in Oregon for seed production. And during that first year, after um, the seed was ripe, and the way that we actually produce grass seed is to cut the cut it, swath it, let it lay on the ground to dry out, and then we come back through and thresh or combine after that. And during that time period, between the time that the field was cut and when it was harvested, a wind storm came through. And actually moved panicles with seed off of uh, one or more of those fields and moved it across the landscape. So it was sort of a unique situation where this seed was moved around um, along with, of course, pollen being moved around at the same time. And so it was a big opportunity to study what happens uh, when, when you have an open pollinated perennial crop uh, that is wind pollinated, which also had uh, relate uh, compatible sexually compatible relatives in the same area. So there was an opportunity to actually uh, sort of watch in real time what would happen when you have a, a transgene put in the environment. 
and and so we were able to follow that over time mm-hmm. yeah yeah I, I yeah it appears to me that you you know, just just as, as a, an aside, uh, your your writings on this subject are very much, um, you know, measured science, and so I I appreciate that. I imagine there's quite a, there's you know as you went forward in this project, it, there's been some challenges because of the stakes potentially involved. But um, so so the the and the, and by the way, this is 2008 paper for the listeners. This is a um, a uh, open access papers so people can read it if they're interested in it um, to learn more but so it basically glyphosate tolerant escapes were being found in 2003 the year after planting is that is that right that's correct yes so yeah it it, within that first year we saw pollen flow um with and with compatible species and so we were finding hybrids within that first year but we also were finding the plants because of both pollen and seed movement. So we were able to find um, both hybridization and seed movement in that first okay. year. In that first year. Okay. And then uh, there's beautiful maps in the paper. And unfortunately, our, our listeners can't see those uh, without, unless they go online, of course. Um, and uh, bef- before I forget, the title of the paper is uh, what's put that on the in the podcast it's escape and establishment of transgenic glyphosate resistant creeping bentgrass agrostis stolonifera and i think if you google that much you're you're going to find the the paper pretty easily but you've got these great maps and you what it looks to me like as i've interpreted this uh there's a um basically 2003 the first year of detection of these glyphosate tolerant plants is the map with really the fewest hits or fewest um plants that were um, positive for the glyphosate tolerant transgene and then as we go into 2004 2005 and 2006 there are greater and greater numbers of hits um is what what do you how do you account for that what do you think is going on there so so in 2003 what we would have been really looking for is just pollen movement because they were planted in 2002 we would have seen pollinate um, pollen movement 2003 and what we collected but then in the future years we would have it would have been a relation you know a, a reflection of how much seed had moved in those those and pollen in that after that first year of production so we really didn't expect to find any plants in 2003 because we would have just been looking for pollen movement off of the okay. fields makes sense so that would be uncompatible species but in the net following years then we saw the actual movement off the fields of both pollen and seed. So if you look at those maps, I mean, it's easy to come away with the the uh, impression that the, you know, that, that this, the, the occurrence of this, the, these glyphosate tolerant plants was, was greater and greater as, you know, through, through 2006. Is that a, I mean, it lo- that's what it looks like, but I think you, paper also says you, you sampled more plants. So do you think it was spreading during that time or? or? I th- well, it's, it's really sort of um, interesting and yes I think it was spreading even though the total number of plants could have gone down over time because at the same time that we were doing all of this sampling and this survey work Scott's was responsible for actually going into those same areas and removing these plants because it was still regulated and because they were responsible um, legally 
to remove those plants, they were removing them at the same time we were surveying. And so we weren't going to exactly the same sites every year, and we couldn't resample the same plants every year to see if they were were moving. Mm-hmm. So um, even though it, it in some cases... Um, in 2005, I think probably we were finding as many as as we were um, in 2006. So it's possible that by 2006, we were starting to actually see some reduction in the number of plants that were out there, but we were still seeing them widespread. Okay. So the number could have been going down, eventually did go down in the sample period because of Scott's efforts to remove plants that were right. positive. But there continued to be evidence of, of some degree of spread is what you're saying is. is yes. Well. Okay, and, and since this this survey, uh, uh, we have found them spread, you know, to, into even more areas. Uh-huh. Um, the numbers are still da- in in this particular every area where those fields were planted. Um, the the number of individual plants is down, but we're still finding them there, which is, um, you know, fourteen years later. Yeah, <laughs> we still find the plants quite easily, and we can also f- have found hybrids between creeping bent grass and, and um, another species called redtop, which is a related compatible species. And we have find, found um, hybrids between those two okay. as recently as this year. Okay, redtop. Yeah. Is, and, and rabbit's foot, are there, I, I think I read something about rabbit's foot, creeping bent hybrids. Um, is, that, is that a different species? And, and I'm, am I mistaken about that? No, that's a different species. In fact, that species is... Um, is in a, even in a different genera. So we have mm. interspecific um, crosses, um, and we also were looking at intergenerics crosses, which we okay. have found. Okay. So, uh, you know, I, I, I should have said in the beginning for the listeners that um, w- one of the reasons of significant concern about this is that Argon is, is, is one of the world's major grass seed producers, uh, principally in the Willamette Valley to the west of the Cascade Mountains, whereas these these outbreaks um, that you're describing of of uh, glyphosate tolerant bent creeping bent are are to the east of the Cascade Mountains, um, but the, the, that's certainly there's a lot of concern among grow, seed producers, right? In in Oregon, tell us tell us about the perception of growers and and that dynamic. Okay, so actually, in the area where those original crop Fields were planted okay. uh, near Madras, Oregon. There is grass seed production in that area, not as much as there is in the Willamette Valley. Oh. And most of the breeding is in the Willamette Valley, which there was a lot of concern about making sure that this um, species was was kept away from where our biggest breeding areas are. Okay. But there is some production of seed um, in Near Madras, There's in also, the area where the introduction what w- was the experimental introduction was made, is that is, yes, yeah, yes, okay. And then we do produce other seed in that area where there is concern that um, that certain markets, which are extremely sensitive to um, any kind of ge- genetically engineered contamination, would be a problem. Mm-hmm. Even though the, they're not compatible species, the the potential for having just uh, a positive test come back could cause disruption of some of the markets. Right. And, and you, and you could get a positive test. As I thought about this, I realized a positive test could occur from 
pollen from creeping bent to another creeping bentgrass field, or it could occur if uh, there were some stray volunteer plants or scattered plants of weeds of of, of uh, glyphosate uh, positive or glyphosate tolerant um, creeping bentgrass in a in a field that it wouldn't hybridize with, but may contaminate. Yes, is that, that's, is that, that's, that's part of the concern. Mm-hmm. That's part of the concern, and and you can even get positive tests from just. Um, Tissue, you know, so you could just be a, a positive test from a piece of, of of a plant that had, you know, sort of has nothing to do with the crop that you're growing. So you would get a PCR positive even from dried grass tissue, wouldn't you? You can, yes. Yeah. Oh, yeah, I can see where this is. So I imagine, um, yeah, I can imagine there's a, certainly a lot of tension in uh, the area over this issue. So a recent um, development let's see if I have this, um, this correctly. The, uh, APHIS in, in, in last month, um, decided to, uh, which by the way, folks, stands for the USDA's Animal and Plant Health Inspection Service or APHIS. And APHIS, um, announced it was deregulating, um, the glyphosate tolerant creeping bentgrass. Uh, and so tell, am I right about that? And tell us, uh, more about that situation. So th- there's a little bit of a lead into that in that okay. we've been talking about this area near Madras, Oregon, Jefferson County, Oregon. But in addition to the um, escapes that were in that area, then in Malheur County, Oregon, which is closer to the Idaho border, where there was never any of this bent grass grown in 2010, we found a fairly large infestation of Roundup Ready Creeping Bent Grass along the waterways in Malheur County. And so there's been a cleanup effort there also. So it's not just that we have just one area in the state that has uh, creeping bent grass, but another um, site in the state. So with that, uh, again, Scott's has been had a, a fairly big effort to uh, control this regulated species in that area also. Uh, that escape likely came from fields that were grown in Idaho, but there's, you know, it's not actually 100% confirmed how that those plants actually got there. Uh, so, so, so there are so there are creeping bentgrass or were creeping bentgrass glyphosate tolerant creeping bentgrass fields in Idaho as well. Yes, there were uh, some okay, small fields. Okay. I think around 2005, actually after um, Oregon asked them to remove their fields from from Oregon. Um, they moved, they did some production in Idaho. Wow. So 2010, um, this, the plants were found in Malheur County, quite widespread. So there was an effort there. But in the meantime, of course, this is still regulated. Scott's is having to do this mitigation plan because it's regulated. Um, and as long as it's a regulated article, they were responsible for doing this. So uh, in t- 2015, they between APHIS and Scotts, there was a memorandum of understanding and a memorandum of agreement that um, about how Scotts would move forward with uh, managing and mitigating what was going on, and especially in the two counties where it was more widespread. At the same time, um, and I would say this was not a very transparent um, process where they were 
really didn't let people who were involved actually know what was going on behind the scenes. But in the meantime, they had some agreements. Scots withdrew their petition for deregulation, then resubmitted it, which is what was in and has now been approved by APHIS. Mm-hmm. So with that approval, it means now it's deregulated. So they are, Scots is really not at this point responsible now for removal or mitigation of this problem in, in Oregon. I mean, that's official, right? The APHIS it's is official. Approved. It was deregulated, yes. Yeah. And so I, I think when we first spoke uh, in anticipation of this interview, I think you gave a phrase I, I wrote down, and that is basically the deregulation means if you don't want the, the, the glyphosate-tolerant grass in your property, you must get rid of it. It's, not, it's no longer the responsibility of anybody else. That's correct. So at this point in time, APHIS is ruling uh, when, within the, the, um, their final uh, decision, basically said it would be up to the growers to control it and that the growers should be able to control it and there shouldn't be any problem, even though after more than 10 years, Scots hasn't been able to mm. control it. All of a sudden, now it's an Oregon grower problem to control mm. it. Okay. Well, well, I, yeah, there's certainly more to, more to discuss and, uh, including lessons learned. Uh, so w- let's take a short break. And, uh, and so, uh, we're talking to Dr. Carol Mallory Smith from Oregon State University. And she's a professor there of wheat science and has been for many years. And, uh, when we come back, we'll continue to discuss the particulars of the transgene flow of, of, uh, glyphosate tolerant creeping bentgrass in, uh, the Pacific Northwest. Thank you for listening to the Talking Biotech Podcast. Today, a note about auto wrecks, podcasts, and happy endings. A note to the Talking Biotech Podcast comes from Jenny from Bemidji, Minnesota. She says that she was listening to the Talking Biotech Podcast while driving late on a snow-covered country road. She hit a patch of black ice and ended up losing control of her vehicle, rolling and landing upside down. She was unable to call for help as she was unable to find her phone. But wherever it was, it continued to play the Talking Biotech podcast. She was trapped there for over an hour, cold but unharmed. Thank goodness for airbags. She wrote, I closed my eyes and listened to the podcast. Kevin and Paul kept me company until help arrived. She was able to enjoy two complete episodes of the Talking Biotech podcast and said that the soothing messages of science made a desperate time much more pleasurable. Thank you for letting us know, Jenny, and proud to be your podcast, Jaws of Life. Share your experiences or interests with us at TalkingBiotech at gmail.com. And now, back to the podcast. And we're back on the Talking Biotech podcast with Dr. Carol Mallory-Smith talking about transgene flow in creeping bent grass in, in Oregon uh, in particular, but also uh, uh, concern maybe even beyond Oregon. So... 
Carol, you've you've worked in this area uh, and done some very good science over the years. Um, lessons learned is is kind of the the theme I'd really like to to explore here in the final part of the interview, uh, and we've got certainly time to do that. Um, what start by telling us, um, you know, a key lesson and key observation that and key lesson that you've learned. Well, I, th- I think the the one big lesson to take from this example of of the creeping bent grass is that it's a different kind of crop. You know, it's a um, an outcrossing species has compatible re- sexual re- sexually compatible relatives that it can cross with. Um, it it has extremely small seeds, so it's gonna it's very hard to contain. Um, Often, when it does escape and it's a volunteer, it's going to be in areas where it's very difficult to see because it could be mixed in on these irrigation canals or whatever with a lot of other grasses. And so you have to actually be able to identify it, which is not, you know, not necessarily that easy in some of these areas. So I think in the beginning, I think this was the biggest sort of error that was made was when the regulators started thinking about this crop, they'd already deregulated quite a few Roundup Ready crops. So they had, um, you know, soy and and uh, corn and cotton, and um, these crops were grown on really widespread acres, millions of acres. And those, but those crops are very different than creeping bent grass. So creeping bent grass is a perennial; it's going to be in the environment. It can last, you know, several years out in the environment. Um, again, hard to identify uh, in the first place. Lots of compatible relatives to hybridize with. And it's just so different than the crops that they had regulated before. I don't think they took that into account, even though there were people who warned about that this could happen. It really wasn't taken into account the way it should have been. And I don't think they really realized what could happen with a crop like this. And so I think in the end, that's one of the big lessons is to think about the biology of the crop. And I I don't think it's a trait so much that you need to be concerned about in a lot of cases, um, but rather the biology of the species and what could happen with that transgene in the environment. Mm. Yeah, that's uh, that seems all very you know understandable. Um, yeah, yeah, this is great because I like next week is is the week that we're going to read your paper from the Journal of Applied Ecology in my class, and so I'm going to have. <laughs> We're going to have some more notes to share with them. This is, uh, yeah, this is really good. Uh, okay, so, uh, so, so what else? I mean, what else have you, uh, th- that, that's certainly enough, <laughs> but, but what else have you learned or, or well, that we can learn from? Well, I think the other thing is this whole idea, and I think I've written this before, is once a gene's placed in the environment, it's going to stay in the environment. You can't. Yeah. You know, you can't redact them or retract them. They're going to be out there. And so before you do that, I think the whole idea of what can happen with the trait itself, is the trait itself going to be different? Is it going to cause some problem that could could actually, um, especially if it's moved to a weed species, is it going to be able to make that weed more competitive? And in the case of the Roundup, resistance that's really not the case unless you're using roundup mm-hmm. right but with the example of creeping bent grass again creeping bent grass really likes to be along water and it's along waterways about the only really effective herbicide that we have to control 
weeds along waterways is a formulation of glyphosate. So now uh, we have lost the best herbicide that we could for control of this species. And so when you apply the glyphosate, which irrigation districts are still going to be doing to control other weeds, they're actually selecting for the glyphosate resistant so, weeds out there. So you're yeah. increasing the populations that oh, way too. Yeah. So I think it's it's a big picture. It's taking the big picture of what are all the repercussions that can happen. So, so again, trait and biology of the species. So the the so if I understood correctly, the, the best herbicide to use along waterways, whether it be creepy grass or any other grasses, is going to be routinely the use of glyphosate. Yes. Right? Yes. Yeah. So really, you you're just guaranteed to to select for the glyphosate tolerant bentgrass. Yes, exactly, which is the problem that now is left to the growers because yeah. their best option for control is now gone. Yeah, that's um, And so really it's it's placing the burden back on individual growers or irrigation districts to control this weed. Right. Yeah, that, that in fact that was one of the um really good quotes um you know that from your your uh, paper and so so to back up just for a minute for the listeners you, you, you the um the deregulation uh of of the glyphosate tolerant creeping bentgrass um from aphis that statement uh made the point that the in the absence of glyphosate the the creeping bentgrass that's tolerant is no different than other creeping bentgrasses and isn't more in, is not more invasive is not noxious and and so it's a, it's a weed like any other. So so in that sense, you know they they felt that it, you know I guess that was part of their defense for not it, it you know not considering it an invasive uh, weed. But um, but the elements that you're adding to this um, to this situation in, include uh, the fact that you know you you really you really don't want to treat this this plant as as you might um, treat a glyphosate tolerant corn or soybeans and and secondly um yeah it's been introduced it's been introduced to the environment and so and so once introduced it's it's maybe very difficult unless there there's a fitness cost to the gene there's very difficult to reel that back in exactly and with the glyphosate resistance there's been no evidence that there's a fitness cost okay so, so you would expect that those plants to just be maintained out out there unless there's some other kind of weed management that's done to remove them. Um, and in some cases within fields, like if they're in a grower's field, there may be some other options, both with tillage and with other herbicides. But along the waterways, there's very little that anybody can do. Yeah. Okay. Well, that's good. Good good stuff i'm glad glad to learn this so you you said um when we talked on the phone you said you're not anti-gmo and uh and 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 whether you are anti or pro or in the middle or agnostic i think is another term you use yeah it is you we're glad to have you on the program but i think it's interesting to to note that that your concerns about this situation are not coming from a sort of an ideology or perspective that you're, that you wouldn't want any use of genetic engineering. It's it's, but this particular instance um, certainly has its challenges, particularly it, in, in so far as it may it may impa- impact eventually um, seed producers. Yeah, that's correct. You know, and even the growers in the areas where they have to do the removal, especially in Malheur con- um, County, 
um, there are a lot of Roundup Ready crops grown there. They grow Roundup Ready sugar beets, and they grow corn, and they grow alfalfa. So it's not that even the growers that are, who are now responsible for removal are anti-GMO. Mm-hmm. They just want this problem to be taken care of by the responsible parties. Mm-hmm. Mm. Well, this is a story to be continued, I'm sure. Uh, <laughs> yeah, very possibly. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> It'll be interesting to continue and, and follow. It's, you know, it's just certainly a upsetting situation, but it, it certainly will be interesting as well to follow it. So, um, so if, if listeners wanted to learn more about your program, where, what would you, where would you send them or what, what could they do? Well, they can, they can look online for, for me, but I mean, they can contact me or we, you know, there's, there's the publications that are out there, mm-hmm. uh, comments that are out there are are all public. Mm-hmm. And we'll uh, we'll put your website on the uh, on the you know the the lead page for the sure. your, this version of Talking Biotech podcast. So uh, yeah, so is there anything else you'd like the listeners to know? I I guess the last comment I would, or probably the last comment I would have, is that. Um, the regulations that were dealing with these genetically engineered crops, you know, they were put together in like the mid 80s and that it's called the coordinated framework and they were put together in the mid 80s. And so now we're trying to deal with especially all the new technology that's coming along, things like CRISPR and other new techniques, you know, that are coming along in, you know, 2016, 2017 and in the few few years to come. We're trying to regulate them under regulations that came from nineteen, like nineteen eighty six, and I might mm-hmm. be wrong on that date, but it's pretty close. So, mm-hmm. you know, the regulations are out of date. The regulations are way behind the science, and so it's really interesting, I think, to watch what's going to happen in the future with some of these new um, techniques mm-hmm. um, and how they're actually going to be regulated, or who's going to try to regulate them. And so, I think that. That's one of our biggest problems is that we're working with really out of late out of date regulations mm-hmm. for these crops. Yeah. Good. All right. Thanks. Well, listen, Carol, it's been a pleasure to interview you. I I'm, cannot uh, thank you enough for coming and sharing uh, your knowledge about a situation that uh, probably has some certain tension around it. So, uh, so once again, thanks for joining us on the Talking Biotech podcast. Okay. Thank you. And thank you for listening to the Talking Biotech podcast. Follow us on Twitter at Talking Biotech. Write a review on iTunes and tell a friend to listen as your support allows us to deliver more about exciting science to more people. I'm Paul Vincelli, and thank you for listening. Thank you for listening to the Talking Biotech podcast. Please send your suggestions for guests, comments, or questions to talkingbiotech at gmail.com. Please write a review on iTunes and recommend this podcast to a friend. More downloads and reviews raise the visibility of this podcast and help us reach a wider audience with science. You've been listening to Talking Biotech, sponsored by Calabra, the platform that bridges the gap between siloed research tools. With Calabra's electronic lab notebook, scientists can work together in real time sharing data and insights with ease. Revolutionize your research collaboration. Sign up for a demo today at collabra.app, C-O-L-A-B-R-A dot A-P-P.